As we get started this morning, I want to let you in on the subtle and often unnoticed hidden humor of Campus Keith Pipes. He has no idea I'm getting ready to do this. He's real nervous now. So this is our worship planning sheet every week. They always leave one sitting back there for me with my mic, and it's got the songs on it and the amount of time. And then you get down here to this message part, and every week he puts in 30 minutes. <laughs> I think we take a vote this morning. How many of you think, and don't vote yet, I'll give you three options, that A, that subliminal messaging from Campus Keith, how many of you think that B, that's wishful thinking from Campus Keith, or how many think that C, that's just straight out mockery of me from <laughs> Campus Keith? So what is it? A, subliminal messaging? No, oh, go, somebody going, D, all the above? <laughs> B, wishful thinking? <laughs> C, just straight up mockery? mockery? Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, but every week, 30 minutes message, <laughs> I'm just like, well... We'll see. <laughs> no, I think he just leaves that in there like that. Um, we're in Matthew chapter 2 today. We were in Matthew 1 last week. But we're going to back up, because I know that we, and by we I mean me, uh, that I spent most of the time in the genealogy last week, those first 17 verses. So we're going to start in 118 and go through the end of chapter 2 this morning. Um, I'm going to pray for us in just a minute and ask that God would speak during this time, that beyond just our minds and our thoughts, engaging like facts and ideas uh, in this story of Scripture, that His Spirit would be doing a work in our hearts on a spiritual level, and that He would help us to see Him and know Him more, and that He would be stirring up the type of faith inside of us that really trusts Him and follows Him, and that we would be being built into His church as we see Him in His Word. So I'm going to pray that and and confess our dependence on him, that if something like that, what I just said, is actually going to happen, that he has to do it, and we need him to do it, and we trust him to do it. And then as I read here, Matthew 1, 18, through the end of chapter 2, be listening first and foremost for what does this teach us about God? And we're going to take some time for you to share some of the things that you're hearing, truths about who God is and how he works and how he's revealed himself, uh, you know, especially and most of all how he's revealed himself in Jesus. In this time of sending Jesus, this Christmas time, what it teaches us about who God is and how he works for his people and what his nature and character are. Uh, so we're going to work through that and then ask him to speak to our hearts and the things that he would say to us this morning. And I've got a few thoughts to share as well. And then we're going to pray again and ask him to really be doing this in us and making us into the type of people that he's calling us to be. So if you'll pray with me right now, we'll jump in. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you have spoken and revealed yourself and made yourself known and that you've recorded it in the Bible so that we can know you now, so that we can understand what you've done and who you are. And we ask right now, Father, that you will teach by your spirit for that very purpose, that we would understand what you are saying that we would understand what you are teaching, that we would understand the things that you want us to know, that most of all, you would open our eyes and soften our hearts to see you and trust you and love you and follow you. And so please, Father, right now, do the type of spiritual work that only you can do. We need you to do it. We confess that we cannot do it apart from you, that we are dependent on you. And because of Jesus, because of his perfect life and his sacrificial death and the power of his resurrection, we believe that you have promised all this and you are doing all this and you offer all this in him. And so we come in the name of Jesus right now and we ask all these things. Amen. All right, Matthew, starting in chapter 1, verse 18 here. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. 
and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. All right. What's that story teach us about God? What stands out to you this morning? You go first. God uses our bad ideas for his great ideas. What part made you say that? Sorry, what's that? When Herod sent the wise men? Yeah, Herod has something totally different in mind, doesn't he, when he tells them where to go? God uses our bad ideas, and I think we can even say here bad motives, for his good purposes. God intends for these wise men from another nation, outside Israel, non-Jews, by the way, just notice this theme connecting to everything that we've seen in Acts over and over and over. He intends for them to come and find this promised Messiah, promised king, and worship him. And Herod's intention here, when we get down in chapter 2, Herod hears there's another king that's been born, and he doesn't like that at all because Herod fully intends to be king for as long as he can. And obviously by then the chapter you realize that he's willing to murder 
and even to murder babies and children to protect his own throne. And so when he sends the wise men, and he tells them, when he calls the, the scribes in who know that the prophets have said Bethlehem, he sends them, go and search diligently, here it is, for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Like when we say bad ideas or bad motives, like Herod has no intention of worshiping him. He intends to kill him. This is a lie. You, know, you want bad ideas, bad motives. He's got a murderous heart here. And in all that, God actually uses Herod to get the information to the wise men that they need to go and find Jesus. And of course, then God's working outside Herod and beyond Herod, speaking in dreams, warning them to go back a different way, warning Jesus, Joseph when to flee with Jesus. But yeah, like, and don't just blow past the fact either that Herod's king. Like, humanly speaking, he's got a whole lot of power. And then I think if we do read the story in the way that this first truth encourages us to, that you would say, so here's this king who's ruling over this whole region, has enough power to order that children be put to death, and it's done on his word. That's how powerful he is, and yet he's just a pawn in God's hands. God working out his plan, accomplishing his purposes, and when he wants to move Herod around, when he wants to prompt Herod to say something or not, when he wants to undermine Herod by giving just this lowly carpenter a dream and sending him away and hiding him for a while, that God's always in control of all this. He is, like, that Herod's terrible, and Herod's responsible for what he does, and not a single thing that Herod does that he's responsible for can undermine anything that God's been promising for thousands of years. What else stands out to you? Mm. So yeah, we do see this with Herod here. And I, I spent a lot of time reflecting on Herod's heart this week. Because I've told you before that I feel like, you know, you come to the Bible and say, what's this teach about God? And that's the primary thing. And then secondarily, when you want God to really speak to your heart, like if you're honestly coming and saying, God, show me my heart, my recommendation would always be find the worst person in the story and assume that's you. <laughs> right? So what you see in Herod's heart, believe that that's in your heart. And what you see about God here, believe that what the truths about God are the answer for your heart. That you can either choose, like Herod does, to ignore that and oppose that and fight against that, and you will be like Herod, or you can submit to who God is and the love and grace of God in the gospel and let him start to change your heart. But the first thing is to know that this is in your heart. And so what Eric was saying, their application for us, like truth about humanity, is when God's plans don't match our plans. We become, did you say enraged? Yeah. Enraged. And, you know, the question's always, when God's plans don't match my plans, am I willing for my plans to change? Now, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus, for him to lead. He sets the course, I follow him. Right? His plans become my plans. I trust him, I submit to him. But what's natural in our hearts is to rebel against that. What's natural is to say, I want to find a way. Like, well, we, we do this in prayer a lot. Like we kind of basket and basket, I'm trying to say. We kind of like cover it in really nice sounding religious language and make it sound like I'm, I'm, I'm asking God for this. But what we do is say, here, God, here's my plans. Will you now make my plans happen? Will you bless my plans? Will you do what I think you should do? Instead of coming and saying, will you speak to me? Will you lead me? Will you show me what you're doing? Show me how to get in line with what you're doing. Bring me along with you. This is me surrendering to you and following you. And then somebody else was saying something too. Yes. The, the world, and, and by world I just mean like our natural way that, that all of us live, what's in our hearts, who we are apart from Jesus has always been opposed to Jesus. And when God speaks the word of like, I'm sending my king, I'm fulfilling my promises, the response of the world isn't, great, look what God's doing. The response of the world is, that's a threat to us and what we want and our way of doing things, and we reject that. What else stands out to you?
God protects us. And one of the ways is by telling us what to do. And there is, I mean, we could spend a lot of time on this. Instead, we'll spend 30 seconds right now. But there is a lot in this chapter of reminders about the sovereignty of God. You know, that he had spoken things 2,000 years in advance, 1,000 years in advance, and that he's been working the whole course of human history to bring them about. It's, you know, Matthew over and over and over in this chapter, probably as much in Matthew 2 as any chapter in the whole New Testament, just keeps grabbing the Old Testament and saying, look at this prophecy, look at this prophecy, look at this prophecy. Every single one of them fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled in Jesus. God's brought it all about. And one way to look at that would be like, okay, God's got this whole thing under control. So here we go. Let's just chill out and watch what he does. You know, or God's got this whole thing under control. He's not going to let Jesus die. I'm just going to sit here and somehow he'll keep Jesus alive. Like that, that a wrong understanding of the sovereignty of God makes us passive. But instead, what happens here is you know, God's got the whole thing under control. He knows what he's doing. When he speaks, of course I'm going to listen to him. It makes all the sense in the world to listen to him. What he says is always true. And so if he says, get up and go, get up and go. If he says, it's time to come back, come back. It doesn't make us passive when we understand correctly. It, it makes us active because when he's the one speaking, when he's the one leading, there's a purpose to it. There's reason for it. It actually matters. It is going to make a difference because he's the one bringing it about. And not just he's bringing it about. This is how he's bringing it about. Like, yes, God is protecting baby Jesus here. How's he protecting baby Jesus? Through Joseph. He speaks to Joseph and tells him what to do. Like, I've, I've assigned you to be the father of the Messiah on earth. Here's what you need to do. And he gives Joseph everything he needs to do it. God's the one ultimately doing it, but through Joseph. And so it should, like a right understanding of who God is, should make us more active, more assertive when he's the one speaking. What else stands out to you? Yeah, so when God says it, God does it. And so then the application for us today is, like, what is God saying to you? Are you listening? Do you believe him? And especially, like, what are the things that he says that you would look around and be like, no, there's no way. Not, not based on what I can see. Not humanly speaking. Not from a worldly perspective. This can't be unless God has said it. I mean, even when he shows up to Joseph and he's like, hey, what's going on with Mary is not what you think's going on. And Joseph's like, no, there's one way that this goes on. Right? And he's like, God's like, no, I've got another way. This is from the Holy Spirit. And, and if you connect that to last week, by the way, we, I didn't say this last week, with when we walked through the genealogy, and you, know, you had scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal that was highlighted. Um, and, and it was Matthew, through the Holy Spirit, drawing our attention to First of all, God's not afraid of these scandals. He doesn't avoid them. He redeems them and he incorporates them and he works them into his purposes. But then we get to this with Mary and you realize, and I feel like this is the only way that you can say it, God is so utterly unconcerned with the way things appear to people. <laughs> like we're so caught up in external appearances all the time. And he's like, and first of all, he's like, yeah, I will include all your worst stories in my best story. And I don't care what people think. I don't care that everybody else is like, you can't do it that way. That looks, that, that, that's sacrificing your holiness. This can't be what you, you can't use that. You've got to shun that. Yeah, and then he's like, and, and guess what? Even when I do the greatest thing I've ever done, I'll let everybody else think it's a scandal. <laughs> like here we are, we're trying to hide our scandals, right? Like I, I got to polish up somehow and make myself look real good so that everybody gets the best impression they can of me. And God's like, I'm going to make you think it's worse than it really is. <laughs> Like, it's going to look like something scandalous even when it's not. He could not be less concerned with the way stuff appears to people or what people think when they make surface judgments. 
that he's doing something deeper and his redemption and his grace runs deeper. And we can circle back around to some of that and again in a minute connecting this back to the genealogy from last week. But what else do you want to say? A couple more thoughts. I think I know why you're saying that, but go ahead and tell us why. Which Yeah. God, God's power is incomprehensible. Since I didn't say that out loud yet, for those of you on on the internet, and then finish what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah, there is mystery here that I feel like we could never get to the, the bottom of. But this idea that God steps down into humanity and takes human nature on himself. That just, I mean, starting with the Trinity and these three persons in one being, you know, we could spend a whole morning talking about that. Maybe one morning we should. Maybe one morning we will. But the, the second person out of those three persons steps down takes human nature on himself so that God has now, in a sense, like united his nature fully with, like, this is a human baby. Like a real human baby, really carried by a human mother, born like every other human baby. And at the very same time, he's the divine and eternal second person of the Trinity, God the Son. That both things, and, and there's not... A blending of the natures. He's not a little bit less human because he's divine. He's not a little bit less divine because he's human. He's not 50% human and 50% divine. He has a full human nature and a full divine nature at the same time. He is God and he is man. And, and the, just this little statement, what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, that it, it's been done differently than anything else has been done in the history of the world, that there's no one like Jesus. Right here, just that verse right there. There's no one like Jesus. And yet Jesus came in a way where he could be like everyone, <laughs> where he could be united to us and associated with us and become one like us so that he could bear our sin for us, so that he could represent us and be a substitute for us, so that it would be right for him to stand in our place, to take our punishment, to pay our price, that what humans owe a human paid. But humans never could have done it in the way that God can. Like only God could save this way. Only God could be sufficient. Only God could do enough. Only God could be good enough. So we need God to save us. But only a human could satisfy justice on behalf of humans. Like it's only Jesus. And it's the power of God, the wisdom and the power of God, beyond anything we can comprehend, bringing that about. Like I do hope that just a little bit this morning you'll sit here and Christmas won't just be normal to you like another year of what we do every year, that, that the, the, awe, the wonders of his love, that was a phrase that we sang earlier, but just the wonder of it and the awe of the most mysterious miracle, the most miraculous mystery that's ever happened in the history of the world, right here in this text right now, that the God who is outside creation that in him we live and move and have our being, somehow steps down into creation and becomes part of it while never ceasing to be the God who's above it. Yeah, it's, and it is incomprehensible. I'm just telling you what happened. I'm not telling you how to understand it. What else? Yeah. God is wonderful. How about that? Does that capture it? Yeah. Go ahead.
Yeah, the, from start to finish, and we're talking thousands of years start to finish, just the wonder of how God has worked all this out. And all the things that he's brought about that only he can do. And the pieces here that we read it in the story and we just keep blowing past it. And it's like, it really is. It's miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Like supernatural intervention after supernatural intervention after supernatural intervention. And of course, of course it would be packed together like this when it is the, big, like the biggest miracle. <laughs> the biggest supernatural intervention that's ever taken place. Just surrounded by all these wondrous, wonder producing things like just filled with wonder when you really stop and look at what God has done and all of this to show that he's a God of grace who saves his people from their sins all of this to come and, and grab people who don't deserve it to come to them when they were far from him and, and to reveal that this is who he really is that this is how he responds when his people are far from him, when his people don't deserve it. This is what he does. One more. Anybody want to throw out one more? God is the author of all true joy. God is the author of all true joy. Yeah, I'd like how Matthew piles these up with the wise men. They... He moves the star so they know where to go and find this baby. And when they saw it, they rejoiced, which you'd think might be enough, but they rejoiced exceedingly, which is like double rejoicing. And they rejoiced exceedingly with joy, which would be triple rejoicing, but it's not just that, it's great joy, quadruple rejoicing. And it is, it's the work of God producing that type of excessive, extravagant, overflowing joy in them, that you won't find that type of joy anywhere in the world. The world can't give you that. The world can give you happiness. The world can give you some measures of satisfaction at certain times. Um, the world can give you pleasure. And, and if you don't want to be like technical in the terms, the world can give you some kind of joy. But this type of exceeding, overflowing, abundant, fill you up and satisfy your heart joy only comes from God and his work. Like, this is who he is and what he does. Anything else? don't want to cut you off too quick here. God cares for us very deeply. Which part made you say that? God cares for us very deeply with just all the details that you see. Like his intimate involvement in the history of this world, in people's lives, and then speaking to us about that and showing us how he's at work and in dreams and in prophecies and fulfillment of those prophecies, just the whole thing. That there, there is an, it is Emmanuel, God with us, God involved in your life, God speaking into your life, God working in the details of your life, God working in all the details of history to, to weave together and tell this grand story where the message really is, I love you and I have come for you. I've come to get you. Uh, and I want to I circle back to that in a minute because it really stood out to me this week. But as I was thinking about all this, just a few things that stood out to me, and all of them connected back to last week. So if you were with us last week and we, when we went through the genealogy, You'll probably know more of what I'm saying. If you aren't, that's perfectly fine. I think you can see it all this week. And if you want to go back and listen to last week, you can. But the, the first thing that just stood out to me was seeing over and over and over again who God came for. That, again, I think it's so easy for us in our flesh, like our natural tendency, and then especially in our religious world, to build up this idea of there are some good people who somewhat deserve it at least, and they'll be useful to God, and that's the kind of people God comes for. Like, we have these categories of like, deserving and not deserving, or more deserving and less deserving, or pretty good and not good at all. You know, whatever you want your categories to be. Like, you know, sort of holy and just need a little help getting there, and unholy. And God, first of all, just obliterates those categories. But secondly, even if you wanted to have those categories, he doesn't come for these people. Like, it's, it's everybody in the category you think he's not coming for. Just watch. She'll bear a son, you should call his name Jesus. This is verse 21. For he will save his people from their sins. Who did he come for? Sinners. 
Right? And like God came for sinners. He's not casting them off. He's not done with them. He's not writing them off. He's not, he's not finding a way, who can I find who's better than this? Give me the good ones. And the type of people who evidently are such big sinners that they need to be saved from their... Like, they are trapped, lost, done, can't get out, need someone else to come and rescue them out of their sin. Hopeless sinners, apart from somebody showing up and saving them. God came for sinners. And then you get down here to chapter 2, and wise men from the east... I mean, think about how quickly Matthew goes here. It's like, Jesus is born at the end of chapter 1, and then who does Matthew show us coming to Jesus? God came for the nations. It's not Israelites. It's not Jews. right? It's not really religious people. It's not the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It's people from some some other country so far away that the way you read Matthew 2, it seems like it took them about two years to get there. You know, by the time they get there and they talk to Herod, Herod realizes, well, this baby is somewhere between birth and two years old now, so I'd kill everybody two years old and younger. So I mean, this is a long way away, but it reminds us again of what we're seeing in Acts, that when God sent Jesus, he always intended for it to be a worldwide work. Like, this is for all peoples, all nations, all races, all tribes, all tongues, all languages from the very beginning. Like, who does he decide specially to tell and specially to bring to Jesus? People who aren't Jews, aren't from Israel, who have to travel two years to get there, so far away that only if God miraculously and specially intends for them to find out do they find out. And then, this last little section down here, after Matthew quotes all these Old Testament prophecies throughout all of chapter 2, you know that he's pretty well versed in the Old Testament. And then he says this, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. There's no exact quote in the Old Testament that says that. He'll be called a Nazarene. That's why your Bibles don't mark it as an actual quote. And so a lot of people, what did Matthew mean there? Why did he use that? When it's not in Isaiah, it's not in Jeremiah. And I think, I know, I've read several commentaries about this, and everybody kind of leans this way. And I think he's offering a summary right here of this is what the prophets said about the Messiah. You know, when Isaiah describes a suffering servant, for example, somebody's going to be rejected by people. And the best way to to get the picture of this is to flip over to John chapter 1 and just realize what it would mean to be from Nazareth and to be a Nazarene in that time. And uh, I think you'll get it here, and if you don't, we can probably work out something contemporary here that will connect for you. But this is when Jesus has first appeared. Like he's grown up now, and he's first calling disciples to him. He's, you know, he's appeared to Philip and Nathaniel and James and John, Peter, some people at this time. And so he's appeared a few times, and Philip goes back to Nathaniel to tell him, like, hey, we've seen the Messiah. We know who it is. And so he, he says, this is John 1:45. We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, to which Nathanael replies, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? That's what Matthew's referencing right here. It'd be kind of like coming into somewhere in Tennessee and talking about Alabama and somebody saying, can anything good come from there? Like, that's what's going on right here. And he's saying, like, if you want in Israel the despised place, the rejected place, the, the least, the place that... that these are the outcasts and the rejects. None of us like them. We think less of them. They, they're us, but they're not us. Right? Like we don't really want to. That's Nazareth. And he sends him there to grow up there. To associate with, be connected with the people who are despised and rejected and outcast. For him to be one of those people, God came for Outcasts, rejects, failures, unloved. This is who he came for. And you think about all three of these right here. God came for sinners. God came for the nations. God came for outcasts and rejects and failures, unloved. We saw all this in the genealogy last week. 
Right, these four women, that it was so abnormal for Matthew to include women, that it would have gotten everyone's attention. And then the women he picked, that they were all associated with massive public scandal in the history of Israel. And, and so you had Tamar, who was a Canaanite, right? Right here. The nations. Not a Jew. Canaanite and a prostitute. Okay, tricked her father-in-law as a prostitute, a sinner. And the reason she had to do it is because her father-in-law had disowned her when her husband died. His son died. He was supposed to eventually let her be married to his youngest son. Wouldn't do it. Like, she is an outcast. She's a reject. She's unloved. And, and God says, put her in Jesus' family tree and draw attention to it. Like, this is who he'll be associated with because this is who he's coming for. And then Rahab, the very next one. Like when, when, when Israel's headed into the promised land, the way that they get in, like before Joshua, before the army, before anything else, you know how they get in? A Canaanite prostitute saves them. Right? They're in, they're in trouble, the spies are about to get caught and be killed, and God uses a Canaanite prostitute, the nations, sinner, reject among their own people, and God accepts her and makes her part of his people and part of Jesus' family tree. And then Ruth is the next one that was mentioned there. We talked about it. She's a Moabite. Again, the nations, not just Israel. And, and the Moabites were descendants of Lot and one of his daughters, their incestuous relationship after they'd escaped Sodom and Gomorrah. So you want sinners, and then you want outcasts and rejects and failures. They weren't even allowed to go into the temple in Jerusalem. And I said this last week, they're not allowed in the temple, but God says, I'll let them be in Jesus' family tree. Because this is who he came for. And then you get down to the, the fourth woman, and God doesn't mention her by name because he really highlights what happened. He calls her the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That what would be Israel's proudest moment, their greatest king in David, he takes the darkest moment of his life. He's, you took somebody's wife, and then you tried to cover it up by murdering him. He was one of your 30 best warriors. You, this is your sin, adultery and murder and cover-up and just all the scandal. So you want sinners, the nations, the Hittites. The Hittites were the ones they were supposed to drive out when they first took over the land and they didn't do it. They failed to do what God told them to do. The, the fact that the Hittites are still in the land is a constant reminder that they never had done what God told them to do. And God's like, all that, all that I'm going to include it in Jesus' family tree because this is who I'm coming for. This is who he picks. It's why he picks Bethlehem and not Jerusalem. <laughs> but who doesn't come to the capital city and to the palace and to the king? Only a God like this who's saying, it's nothing about you. It's nothing about your credentials or your accomplishments. It's God saying, you can't impress me. And you don't. And it's okay. <laughs> I didn't come to be impressed. I came because you need me. Like I came for you. And so he goes to the smallest town, even when he picks Judah out of the 12 brothers, right? Judah's the one with this awful scandalous story. He's like, Judah's going to, all the kings will come from Judah. So he picks Judah when he could have picked 11 other brothers. Then he picks Bethlehem when he could have picked Jerusalem. And then he picks a no-name carpenter. And nobody knows Joseph and Mary. And then he lets it look like a scandal. It's nothing like what we think. And it's such good news for us that it's nothing like we think. That God comes for sinners. God comes for the nations, for all people. God comes for outcasts and rejects and failures. God comes for those who are unloved. And so then as I was really thinking about it, that, you know, that's who he comes for. That's the type of God that he is. Think about how different that is from the picture we get of Herod right here. And let Herod, let Herod speak to your heart and just ask yourself if, if this is in you. Is Herod us? And then Herod being the picture of what the world's really like. You know, what Herod does is that Herod tries to protect himself. Right? If this baby really is going to be a king, he's a threat to my throne, to my power. And so I've got to protect myself. So Herod defaults to self-protection. And then... Herod tries to use his power for himself. Right? Here's, 
Here's what I can do. Here's my authority. Here's my ability. I will use my power to protect myself, which now we're beyond just self-protection to this self-centeredness. It's about me. It's for me. Whatever I do will be for my sake. And if that means that people who aren't me, innocent people who aren't me have to die, so be it, as long as I get what I need for me. Do you see strands of self-protection? Like when something really threatens your plans, when you've got things that are important to you and valuable to you and things that you want and something shows up and is about to mess them all up, what wells up inside of you? What type of reactions grow up inside of you? Is it, I've got to find a way to protect my plans. I've got to find a way to get what I want. Whatever it costs for everybody else, this is what I'm looking for. This is what it's got to be. Like we do have this Herod in us. And so I was just thinking about the contrast between Herod and Jesus. Like the type of king that Herod is and how much better Jesus is. And I'm going to write these down so it'll take a little bit longer, but just reflect on these for Christmas. Like this is the king who came for you. This is the type of God he is. So Herod wanted to protect himself. Jesus sacrificed himself. Herod tried to use his power for himself. Jesus used his power to save others. Herod tried to keep what was his. Jesus gave what was his and gave it all to the point of death. Herod killed people who didn't deserve it. Jesus died for people who didn't deserve it. And then this one, just let it all pile up for you. Herod was a king in a palace in the capital who died and is done. Jesus was a king in a stable in a tiny town who was resurrected and reigns forever. Like just, just for a minute, just be in awe of who he is. That he let it all go, gave it all up, laid it all down. There's no self-protection in Jesus. There's no self-centeredness in Jesus. There is a love that flows out from him to his people. A love that flows from him to the people that he came to save. The people that he said, I know you're sinners. I know that you need to be saved from your sins. That's why I came. It's not a secret. I'm not surprised by it. But that this love that flows out from, his love doesn't flow to you because of you. And that's what makes it so trustworthy. Like it doesn't rise and fall with you. It's not like if you qualify for it, if you're good enough, he'll love you. 
He's saying up front, and this was the part that stood out to me the most. I just kept thinking about that genealogy last week. And it's like God saying, I know. I know your worst moments. I know your biggest scandals. I know your biggest failures. I know the depth of the depravity and the blackness of the sin in your heart. He's saying, I know. And let me show you, I know. You think that maybe after 2,000 years you could hide some of this. You think that maybe you could gloss over it and just talk about how great Judah was and how great David was and how great... No! I know what they were really like. And then he's saying, and I used them anyway and I redeemed it and I'm bringing my son to tell you that that's the type of people I come to save. I don't save you because I think you're better than you are. I save you because I know how wretched you are. And it's your only hope. And you desperately need it. And it's like he's saying, and if I know, and I'm not ashamed to be associated with it, then you can admit it. You can be honest about it. You can confess why you need Jesus. And so it just kept standing out to me that he knows, listen, he knows what he's getting into you with you. You're not going to surprise him. It's not, like, you are not more than what he bargained for. All right? Like your mess isn't worse than what he thought it was. He knows and he still loves you. Like knowing he comes. Knowing he redeems all of that. Knowing he chooses them. Do you see that right here? And I've just thought all week, I'm just going to say it, how hard it is for me to believe that. And I think it's probably hard for you too, like to really believe that God loves you that way. Because in the back of all of our minds, like with everybody else in the world, as Jesus lives in us and produces his love in us, we're able to love this way some. But listen, we're all imperfect. Like you don't encounter anybody else in your life, and you're not this person who loves you this way. And so a lot of us live a lot of our time, maybe all of us, and if this is not you, then hey, you get permission to say it. I don't understand, but I'm, I think this is you. A lot of us live a lot of our lives, really, like if you got into one of the deepest fears, in our, like if you could just like strip everything away, we don't look at this ourselves, we don't want to admit it to anybody else, but here it is, feeling like really at the deepest level, I'm unloved. People don't really love me. And maybe just in general, like I feel like people don't love me. Or even the people who do, it's just because. It's because they don't really know. If they really knew who I am, if they knew the worst parts, they wouldn't love me either. Or it's just because I do this for them, or I give this to them, or, or this relationship's beneficial. If it ever stops being beneficial, they won't love me. And we fear this type of love that's very conditional and very earned and very dependent on us. Even this morning when I was thinking about this, and I was trying to decide how much time to spend on this, and this is one of the things that God does. The girls came up here and wanted to write on my iPad before the service. And Emery wrote me this note. Can you all see that? And it's really, really sweet. I love you, buddy, and then for who you are. Which is super, super sweet. But if we're really, really honest, there's a part of me that thinks, what about when you find out I'm not who you think I am? What about when you're 26 and not 6? And you know I didn't hang the moon. What about then? And every one of us, every one of us in our lives have this gaping hole inside of us where we're saying, I'm not enough. And I feel like people only love me if they feel like I'm enough. And so I've got to pretend and act like I'm enough and I've got to keep up this charade and it's exhausting and it never satisfies me because I don't feel like they love me anyway because they don't love me. They just love the fact that it seems like I'm enough. And we... Hear me this morning. God really loves you that way. 
It's not because of a single thing that you offer Him or do for Him or give to Him. He loves you because of Him, not because of you. You don't produce His love in Him. He produces His love in Him. You don't attract His love from Him. He gives His love to you. And so with these thoughts, I was just thinking about it this way, and I hope you'll hear it, because it goes in both directions. Like, and, and the other reason it's hard for us is because when we think about our love for God, our love for God is still an imperfect human love where it's like, I love you because you've done this for me. <laughs> right? You gave all these things to me. You saved me. You sent Jesus. You're good to me. So we love Jesus. Because of who he is. And what he's done. All right, so here's the reason. Our love for Jesus is prompted by who he is and what he's done. But hear this other part right here. Jesus loves us in spite of who we are. And what we've done. That's what all of Matthew 1 and 2. The people who are unworthy, undeserving, sinners, failures, outcasts, rejects. There wasn't something about them that drew his love to them. Unless you just say it's the fact that they needed it. That they were empty and bankrupt and desperately needy. And that's who he comes for. That's who he comes to. That's who he gives himself to. And so this, make sure you see this. Our love for Jesus is because of Jesus. Right? He did something because of who he is. Like it, he, he wins our love. He earns our He comes to people who don't love him. And he, he is such a God and such a Savior that he stirs up love inside of us when we didn't love. So our love is because of him. But then also... Jesus' love for us is because of Jesus. It originates in him. There's not something outside him compelling him to love. There's something inside him. And that's different. Listen, that is different from anything else you've ever known. It is different from anything that you can offer apart from him. It's different from anything you can receive apart from him. I just want you to stop for a minute and just, like, can you really imagine a love that you don't earn? A love that you can't lose? A love that is not because of what you can do for him or because of what you will do for him. A love that is just because. Like 100% just because, because he decided to love you. Because of who he is. And so long as he doesn't change, his love for you is never going to change. And he doesn't change. A love for you that would be no matter what it costs him. Like he's already shown you this. He's, he's not just saying that he has shown you this. Whatever it costs him, there'll never be a point where he says, no, that's too much, you're not worth it. He's already said you're worth it. Because of him, because of his love for you. You're worth leaving heaven. You're worth stepping down into creation. You're worth this mysterious humbling that he goes through. You're worth a life of rejection and being an outcast. You're, you're worth poverty. You're worth failure. You're worth being rejected by the political leaders and the religious leaders and the popular crowd of the day. You're worth all the shame and humiliation you can imagine. You're worth all the physical pain and beating and, and just utter agony and suffering. You're worth the spiritual price of being separated from the Father as the wrath of God is poured out on him. He says, I'll take it all for you. And I know who you are. 
Or there's not something that's coming out later where he's like, oh, I wasn't planning on that. He knew. He told you ahead of time that he knows. And he loves you in the midst of all that. And so then what happens is we say, okay, only Jesus can love that way. And the only way I can ever love him that way is if it's his, his own love. Like, this is why I need Christ to live in me. This won't come naturally to me. Can he produce this in me so that I can offer to him what he gives to me? Yeah, but only if it's his. Can he produce this in me so that I can start to love people this way? Like with a love that comes from Jesus and not a, not a love that is this transactional human love that we give. Like a real, divine, unconditional love that just says, I love you. Like it does not matter. I love you. And if there's stuff we need to deal with, we'll deal with it. If there's stuff we need to work through, we work through. But I'm going to love you no matter what. You know, when, when I blew up my life with my sin, and the thing was, it, it just happened to be sin that became really public and was scandalous, right? It was just representative of everything that's in my heart and your heart in a lot of ways. But it was just easier to see for a few, few months. But when I blew up my life, I had these, just this handful of people that really believed the gospel in a way that, I mean, when I had nothing to offer, but it's just going to be misery for you to be associated with me. That's what I had to offer. And they're like, we're here. And it was the first time, really, I think, in my life that I was thinking, maybe people do love like this sometimes, if Jesus really lives in them, if they really believe the gospel. But I can tell you how hesitant I was, like how scared I was. And I was talking with one of them this week, just reflecting on all this. And he was like, well, you remember like, when you were coming to work and you were just afraid I was going to fire you over this or this? I was like, yeah. Like, I just, it got into this place where I just thought, that's how, that's how this whole thing works. Like, um, and then, and we were talking about it, and, and he said, you know, I mean, I know that there's still probably a point where we could burn each other so badly that one of us would give up on the other one. Like, it's still, it's who we are as humans. Like, it's still, it's still what can I get out of it. It's still Herod. But we were both like, but I really don't want to live that way. Like, I don't want to have that type of relationship. That God has done something different in the gospel that originates in him and flows completely out of him and he has enough of it for you. Whatever your story is, whatever your deepest fears are in the darkest place of your heart, the stuff that, and maybe you would articulate it differently than I did this morning, but whatever it is that you feel like is missing the most or that you long for the most and you don't have and you think you're never going to have or, or whatever the things are that you're trying to hide and you think, I can never admit these, I can never say them out loud, I can never let this come to life, he already knows. And he already loves you. And he's already done everything that you ever will need. And he's offering it all to you in Jesus. And I pray that you'll believe that. This is the very first thing that you will just believe that that's who he is and he keeps showing that that's who he is and that's what he's done. And then I pray that as we believe that, it'll start changing who we are. That we would trust him to live that in us, to fill us with that. That we'd be that type of people. That we'd be that type of church. That we would offer something. That we, we would say, I don't, I don't need things from you. I can just love you because I've got everything from him. He loves me. He accepts me. He approves of me. He gives to me. He lives in me. He produces it. It's his. I can offer you what's his, and everything's his. Jesus is the greatest king the world has ever known. And Jesus is unlike any other king you've ever known. Like He just keeps flipping everything upside down, turning it all on its head. And he comes and says, I'll be a king who doesn't look anything like a king. I'll be a king who looks rejected and, and poor and in, in the, the, the smallest and least and, and most outcast types of places. Like He'll be that type of king so that you would know he's a king who came for you. 
He's not repulsed by the rejected and the outcast and the failures and the sinners. He came for them. He associates with them. He intends for you to be part of his kingdom. He loves you that way. And so I pray that you see him this morning. We're going to worship him together in just a minute. I'm going to pray for us, and the worship team's going to come up here, and we're going to sing another song together. I pray that you see who Jesus is as we head into Christmas this year. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the truth of your word and the truth of who Jesus is. Please open our eyes to see and soften our hearts to believe and build our lives and build your church on this one great gospel truth. Father, we believe you and we desperately need it. We need you. Thank you for loving us because of you when we could never deserve it, when we could never earn it. Thank you that this whole thing depends on you and you have been faithful to do it from the very beginning until right now and we can trust you to keep doing it. We trust you, Father. Sweep us up in what you're doing. Do the work that only you can do. And do it so that Jesus will be seen and known and trusted and loved in our lives and through us in the lives of people all over the world. For the sake of Jesus, in his name we pray.